0: Last week I was not here. I was on vacation with my family. I went on a carnival cruise. Now last year this time, Carolyn and I went on a celebrity cruise for our 25th anniversary. And uh, for those of you who have ever been on two kinds of cruises, there's a celebrity kind of cruise and then there is a carnival kind of cruise. Uh, I would say the celebrity one's a smidge more upscale. Uh, It was certainly longer too. The carnival one, uh, was for us uh, four days. Uh, the celebrity one was like seven. Uh, the carnival one, we took our kids with us. Uh, the celebrity one, we didn't. Um, I also noticed that on the carnival one, it was fast enough where I didn't take, you know, I, I didn't start complaining, and I know that might sound odd to you, but it was a year ago on this trip that I saw like the worst part of who I am. I mean, I, I was on this carnival, cru- I mean, I was on this uh, celebrity cruise with Carolyn, and uh, on the final night, night six, you know, it's really crowded in the, um, really crowded in the dining room, and, and dinner was taking a long time, and I was starting to get um, impatient. And, and she looked at me and kind of went, really? You know, like, as if to say... You know, we normally eat on a subway budget, and you're complaining about how long it's taking the filet mignon to get to the table. You know, it's one of those moments where you realize it wouldn't take long for me to become an entitled snot if I had millions of dollars. I, I can just see it real clearly, being end up being that guy and not really wanting to be that guy. Uh, and, and so this is all about perspective. I mean, and really, the longer I would have been on a luxury cruise, the more twisted my perspective about what I was entitled to was going to be. Yeah, perhaps you know what that's like if you went on a family trip. Uh, you, you'd go on a family trip, and you'd get in the car. My, my parents decided it was a really good idea for, for us to pile into a station wagon. Now, there should be six kids and them, and drive across the country. And you Remember the question, if you've ever been on one of those that your kids are, your kids are constantly asking? Are we there yet? How much longer till we get there yet? Because all you can think about is how much you're suffering in the car next to your little brother, your little sister, just everybody arguing over little things. And and, and what kids are asking for is a perspective. They're saying, you know, I, I need to know when this suffering is going to end. You know, now we're in the middle of a study, and we're actually coming to the conclusion of it. Bold letters from the Blood Brothers, and we're finishing up with James. We did Jude before that. These are the half brothers of Jesus. You can hear all those sermons online if you've been gone this summer. Uh, help yourself. Uh, James is going to start talking about suffering and and perseverance. And for 21st century Western Christians, when we start reading scriptures about suffering and persecution, sometimes we read them, and it's like, "Ah, I don't get it. Because we're super affluent, and in America anyway, you're relatively safe. Um, I humbly suggest to you that given the current social climate, uh, Orthodox Christians uh, in our lifetime may actually not be quite so safe, but that's another sermon for another day perhaps. Um, I would tell you, though, that with that said, there are a number of practical applications uh, in this passage for those of us who are suffering as Christians in a variety of other ways. Because it's not just about being persecuted for being a Christian. The Christian life is challenging. You're faced with temptations. You're faced with trials. You're faced with an expectation from Scripture that you're going to suffer well. And this is effectively what James is talking about in his context. He was dealing with Christians who were actually being persecuted by the wealthy And oppressed by the rich, James encouraged them not to act in such a way as to say, we are God's people going to bring about justice by force, because James had said in James 1.20 that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God's requires. Instead, he's calling Christians to a patient endurance with their eternal destiny in mind. You and I going through difficulties, going through challenge, perhaps even going through persecution or injustice, while we may feel at some level it's our right and our duty to stand up to injustice or to fight for justice, James is speaking to our hearts as we go through these things. Are we able to rest? Are we able to, when we are in the midst of the pressure cooker, have peace? Now, whenever we're pressed to be impatient or intemperate, through suffering and trials. Whenever pressure begins to, as the old adage say, reveals cracks, pressure reveals cracks. Whenever we are under the gun, we tend to see some things come out of us that we're not proud of. Now, uh, James is going to summarize by saying our, our default is, normally we would, tr- we would do these three things. We would, A, become impatient with God's timing or purposes. So when the pressure comes, we may find ourselves angry with God because it isn't happening as fast as we wanted it to happen, or it isn't happening the way we thought it could happen. Another thing that comes to us naturally is we may lose our eternal perspective on life. And then in the context of James's life, Christians would begin attacking other Christians. I think you could even extrapolate this out to just becoming somebody who is critical of everything and everyone. You just become a critical person. Now, where we're called or commanded to behave is that in this way, we are supposed to respond to pressure by being patient, by establishing our hearts, and not grumbling against others. And today, I want to look at how we do these things. And perhaps, more importantly, I want to peer into the root of our inability to live naturally as James is directing us to do. I mean, there are some things that are inhibiting us, our nature and really our culture in many ways are, are, prevent, are, are obstacles to us discovering the joy of living the way James is telling us to do. So let's begin by looking at my first thought from James 5, 7 through 9, and that is this prevailing patience requires perspective. That's the first thing I think we can see in this passage, that if we want the ability to be patient and have that be a defining characteristic of our life, it's going to require perspective on our part. Verse 7 begins, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. A couple things that will be a part of having a patience that prevails. It's going to require a perspective change on our parts. It's going to require a patience that is born of the Lord's love. Now, three different times in this passage, you see reference to not only being patient, but you see about that what's being used is the contrast is a is a time frame. We are told to use the coming of the Lord as our outside date for when suffering will end. Now, enduring suffering gets easier when you know the end date. Right? You ever had a job you couldn't stand and you were going to leave in three months? It's a lot easier when you know three months is coming. You know, if you're, in a, if you're in school and you go, I'm just so tired of this, but you're a senior, you realize, I'm close, one more year of this, and then I'm on to the next thing in life, thank the Lord. Perhaps any of us would understand that. The, the despair comes for many when it doesn't seem that there's any change coming anytime soon. If your marriage is in trouble, many people have experienced this. You've made a commitment to live with somebody as long as you, you know, to, to care for them, love them, as long as you both shall live. And sometimes they're not very lovable, and neither am I. And so you know, I'm saying you, you know the experience of thinking that I'm, I'm in this relationship, and I can't get out of it in this lifetime. And and I've seen couples get to the brink of despair and and that's usually what causes them to disobey the Lord and simply just leave a spouse. Uh, There are other situations too where we just despair. We think we're never going to get what we'd hoped for and we begin to think, is life really worth living? Despair results from thinking the pain will never end and James is encouraging us to have an eternal perspective on life He's saying that there is a biblical truth that this life is very short and eternal life is very, very long. My darkest hour in life several years ago was an experience I had related to church. And part of what was cooking in my soul was that I had incorrectly focused too much on what I was going to get out of this life. In other words, I was finding my life in the things of this world. And so when those things looked like they weren't going to happen the way I happened, along with other things that were troubling me, I started to melt down. It didn't matter how many people assured me that in this life I'd get better or that if they meant well, they'd say silly things like everything happens for a reason. But I could not convince myself of this. My root problem was I was focused on earthly things to provide what was really making me live. When that happens, my perspective gets twisted. And part of that is the perspective that this life is really what it's all about. And ultimately, what you discover, as I did, is that it's a math problem. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I would despair of life if what gave me life was only going to last for 40 more years. I would find myself saying, you know what, I'm suffering in this life, and my whole life is built up in this, and I can't endure. But if I have an eternal perspective, I begin to see, as James would instruct us here, that we're supposed to focus on the reality of the coming of the Lord. That's when the suffering ends and eternal life goes on for a really long time after that. So when I say it's a math problem, I'm saying if my whole life is focused on these 40 years and I have no perspective on what eternity is going to look like, then 40 years seems like an awfully long time. But if I put it in an equation and I say, okay, 40 over 40 billion, then it's a fraction of my life. It's merely a fraction of my existence will I be assuming I'm even going to suffer for the remaining whatever years I have on this earth. Comparatively, we're told to really see life for what it is. So my problem was what was giving me life and how long that life was perceived to go on. I was looking too much to the stuff of earth to satisfy a soul that will only be satisfied as it finds its purpose in knowing and enjoying God. Jesus said something in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 15. I always love this passage because it shows the obnoxious nature of human beings, me amongst them. Someone in the crowd said to him, I'm quoting from Luke 12, quote, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's an amazing thing that somebody would just kind of interject a stranger for all intents and purposes into a legal problem and say, you know, you seem like a good guy, tell my brother to give me the money he owes me. I mean, this is a really obnoxious request of the creator of the universe, but here we go. Jesus responds to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? I love that. Then he said to them, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, abundance of life is found in the presence of God. We're called to experience God, and and then we're supposed to see in finding our life in Jesus, finding our hope in him, finding our joy and walking with our creator, that that's never going to end. So regardless of how difficult some of life's circumstances are, if those aren't the source of my life, the source of my life continues. But it's not just perspective based on life's length. It's a patience that's born of the Lord's love. James is reiterating his point from earlier in the letter. See, he was mentioning, and we have talked about it in sermons past, that often what comes out of our mouth is, is indicative of something that's going on deep, deep inside of us, grumbling against one another, complaining, trash-talking, criticizing. All these things are indicative of a heart that is impatient with others. And oftentimes, it's because that heart largely still believes that God is impatient with them. And this is where we talk about gospel application. When we talk about rooting ourselves deeply in the gospel of grace, see, the degree to which we are patient with others is the degree to which we are growing to understand how patient the Lord is with us. See, as you understand his disposition towards you as gracious, you can't help but be gracious towards others. The degree to which we are patient demonstrates how much of the Lord's patience we really understand, we really have experienced. I regret to reform you that this is a major area of weakness for your pastor, and I'm not talking about Brooks. It's something against which I continually fight, and when I see my impatience, I'm forced to face down the reality that I don't understand God's love like I need to. And so the pursuit of God for me is not just a religious obligation. It is something that I desperately need to do because if <laughs> I clearly don't get it. I mean, I clearly don't comprehend it. And that's evidenced by how unloving I can be at times to others. Jesus told this great story in response to some people. He visited this guy Peter's house. and And there was an adulterous woman there who came in and she wept at his feet and washed his feet with her hair. And it was an amazing act of thankfulness and gratitude. She was, she was worshiping him because she'd felt in his presence such amazing grace. And they started to grumble. And they said, you know, hey, if you really knew who this woman was, you wouldn't be, you know, so comfortable with her touching you. And Jesus arrests their attention in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 47. And, and he says this. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. she did all these things, and then he forgave her of her sins, he's saying, because she's been forgiven of so much by me, she's overwhelmed with gratitude. It is what defines her life. Otherwise, we tend to think we're entitled. We tend to think that we deserve forgiveness. And he's saying that's not the case. Whoever has been forgiven a lot loves a lot. And so when I don't love you well, that says something about me, about how little I understand how much God has loved me. And that is what should pull you and I into deeper fellowship. It should draw us. It should cause us. It should compel us. It should cause us to see, oh, dear Father, the problem of me being unloving towards others is I don't get how much you love me. I really don't understand it. I see my life. I see how unloving I have been and how unloving I am. The key to that is not just deciding one day, okay, I'm going to start loving people well. It's saying, Jesus, I don't know what it means to be loved like this. Help me. As I mentioned, we went on a cruise, and part of that cruise goes to Ensenada, Mexico, which, of course, is a one-time thing. You never want to go to Ensenada twice. But here are the highlights. Um, Nick and I visiting the Corona factory. Got to love that. That's high up on the priority list. Um, The the middle picture is Carolyn, Holly, and I getting dysentery at a local uh, Mexican restaurant. That was fun. It's really enjoyable. Uh, One of the things we actually went to is this this area where they have uh, this water spout that comes up, and everybody goes to the ocean to see it, and apparently... Uh, over the years, they've had people, uh, I guess Americans primarily, because they have signs in Spanish and English, right? And so Americans are, people climb these rocks, and they fall down and hurt themselves on these really sharp-edged rocks and then drown in this, this water spout. And, uh, and you know this is a problem, because when I looked at these signs on the hill overlooking, if you're looking close, uh, one of the signs says, in English, We are not responsible for those who get hurt who disobeyed the rules. We are not responsible for actions caused by people who do not obey the rules. Mexicans get it, you know? And, And one of the other thoughts I had was they probably don't have a lot of personal injury attorneys because personal injury attorneys don't agree with that statement, you know? As Chris Farley said in his commercial for his law firm. Never mind, it's an old Saturday Night Live thing. Sure, the sign said no trespassing, but when you're as drunk as I am, who can read signs? That was the joke from Chris Farley, so um, I miss him. My son, Nick, got to be a part of this part of the cruise. He had been carsick, or, or boat sick, or motion sick, and he really took some courage for him to get out of bed, because he wasn't feeling like walking with us, but now he can look back on that day and say, you know, I was a part of those family experiences um, because he was there. I-, I can't imagine trying to go back and describe to him the things we experienced as we walked around along the street or rode the bus through the roughest parts of Ensenada. You know, we I, I couldn't have described that to him. No one can describe that to you. That is something you have to experience. And this is the same way as it comes to Getting and understanding the Lord's love, patience that's born of an experience with his patience with you, perspective based on a life where you're focused on things eternal instead of the things of this earth. You see, prevailing patience requires the right perspective. Second thought I have for you today is this, serene suffering requires steadfastness. You're going to have peace through the midst of trial. It's going to require some steadfastness on your part. James speaks very truthfully to us in saying, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I mean, if I were to translate this into the modern-day vernacular, we don't remember people who don't heroically fight through the difficulty. Do you remember the names of anybody from any of the great world wars who, who ran away from battle, who did not face it? We, no, we think of the great names of World War II, the greatest generation. We, we call up the names like Eisenhower and... And, and Patton and, and other people who fought to liberate Europe. See, we, we, he's saying, remember the prophets of old? We, we honor the ones who were steadfast. And he's calling us to the same level of steadfastness. And, and tells us, and we're the ones who know how gracious and compassionate. How compassionate and merciful the Lord is. Steadfastness is defined as a firm loyalty and constant, unswerving dedication to something or someone. When something or someone is steadfast, they are fixed, unchanging, solidly established, immovable, irrefutable, unalterable, and completely dependable. Well, obviously that's none of us, but this is how God describes himself. Malachi 3.6 is one of my favorite verses. God says, and I love this translation of it. I am the Lord, and I change not. You can actually hear a British guy saying that. And it sounds a lot better, doesn't it? I change not. I mean, I'm really terrible at accents, but you get the idea. James is calling us to mirror God's steadfastness as it pertains to, not simply to character development, but more fundamentally He's asking us to steadfastly pursue fellowship with the Lord. See, this is why we were created, to know God, to enjoy God, and to glorify God. And I don't care how tough a guy you are or how tough a woman you are, and you think, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't need anybody else. That's not the characteristic that is supposed to be the one that is the most understood of a believer King David was the greatest warrior of his day, the king of Israel. And you can hear in in the Psalms where David will cry out for the Lord. In Psalm 63, King David, macho King David, cries out, "O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. A person who'd risen to the top. David had it all. David blew it all. David made lots of mistakes. David was a man's man. And he's still saying the thing that gave him the most joy in life was interacting with the presence of God going to the temple and beholding the beauty of God, meditating on God in his bed. These were the things that gave him life. He even said, your love is better than life. He was a man that was looking to eternal things to satisfy his soul's deepest longing. The gospel, the good news, has made us, Jesus has made us in the gospel, his daughters and sons, the daughters and sons of the Most High God, were the beloved children of the Father. And verse 11 says, we've seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we are called to steadfastly pursue God, like we'd pursue water if we were wandering in the desert and literally dying of thirst. There might be mirages that we'd have to resist and trust God that he was going to provide a true oasis where real life-giving water would quench our souls. And this is the type of thirst we're called to pursue God with that kind of rigor. We are a gospel-centered church. Perhaps you've heard that term bantered about. Uh, We must be a gospel-centered church. It says so on the Internet. Um. What we mean by that is that it isn't enough for a person, because a person doesn't have it within them, to say, I'm just going to try harder to be steadfast and patient. Today, I'm going to grit my teeth, and I am going to become steadfast, patient, and loving. Looking to Jesus is the only way we're going to have either the inclination to really do this Or the strength to see it come about in our life. And that doesn't mean that we're going to go through a positive thinking, you know, mantra each morning. Or simply commit ourselves to speaking different truths. Our daily encounter with God is a relational one. And and I want to say something, and, and, and I really beg your attention to it. Because it really forms the foundation of our church. In some ways, I believe it's why... Some would characterize our church as friendly. And that is this, repenting to righteous behavior is not the same thing as repenting into relationship with God. What what I mean by that is that the scriptures say God isn't about moral compliance, he's about meeting you for fellowship through the Holy Spirit. He wants you to love Him and obey Him, but if you're doing righteous acts, but you don't talk to Him, you don't look to Him, you're not experiencing Him, you're sort of missing the point. See, it's about Him connecting you back to Him, restoring you to Him so that you can enjoy that which you were created to enjoy, Him. He's about meeting you for fellowship. He's not just about training you to do the right thing. He's about transforming your heart through your ongoing encounter with him and the reality of who you are now. He wants to have close fellowship with you. And we're called to set aside that time, to find places where we can encounter the Lord. And that means reshuffling our schedules. For some of us, it means saying things like, you know what, I know I'd rather sit around and watch the Olympics tonight, and frankly, I would like to watch the closing ceremonies, but I'm going to come here and pray. I'm not trying to bully you into coming. I'm saying that these are the kind of choices we make in life. I'm going to get up half an hour earlier to meditate on Scripture and to think about God, not because He's going to like me anymore, but because that's where I find life. That's how I get water for my thirsty soul. That's where the well is. On this cruise we just went on, they have this section of the boat called Serenity Deck, right? And, and this really, uh, what makes it serene is that no kids are allowed and, 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 and no music. So it's not like the, you know, the Carnival Fun Squad out there playing Uptown Funk 24 hours a day, you know, it's, it's, which is just horrible. You know, I mean, just if, you know, how many weddings have I been to where it's, oh, it's Uptown Funk again. And it's just like, I just do not need to hear this song one more time. <laughs> Thank you very much. No line dancing on the serenity deck. No fattest guy on the boat contest, thank the Lord, because I didn't want to get entered into that one. Just, just hanging out, you know what I mean? This is uh, my favorite thing to do on the cruise. My daughter took a picture of me enjoying fruity drink, and that's a... Uh, and yes, I am wearing a shirt because it's the serenity deck, and uh, out of respect for others' desire for serenity, they... <laughs> don't need to see me without a shirt <laughs> swimming in a pool with a long sleeve sun shirt anyway um the whole time I'm out on this deck called the serenity deck though for those of us who are fans of seinfeld all I could think about was the serenity now episode <laughs> now if you're not familiar with this episode of seinfeld this is where george's dad has been told to control his blood pressure he needs to recite this mantra of serenity now, all right? Well, the problem is, is that he yells it, which sort of defeats the purpose. Serenity now, you know, because he's like intense, you know? It's supposed to be this thing where you kind got to go, serenity now, you know? Now, there are Christian expressions of this type of psychology, just so you know, it's called the health and wealth movement. There are people that will say, you know, it's really important to just say the right things, just repeat the mantra, I am rich, I am rich in Jesus, I am a winner, I am a winner in Jesus, I'm not sick, even though the thermometer says 104 and I should go to the emergency room. It's that kind of crazy talk. I'm here to tell you today that serenity is not ignoring your circumstances. There's no getting away from being persecuted as the people in James's era were. If you've had a loved one pass away, no mantra is going to make you miss them any less. The real pain in life exists. The the goal is to experience a sense of peace with God amidst that storm. Genuine Christ-centered peace comes when we recognize the presence of God in our lives. Like the rest that comes when you eat lunch at a restaurant and you see that there are plenty of police around. You know, for me, when I was on the cruise, my serenity deck turned into a devotional moment every morning because if, what you discover on a cruise is that, you know, in the morning, like 7.30, everybody's hungover, so they stay in bed, and so, so the serenity deck is literally empty. And so I go out there with my Bible and my, and my journal and, and just really enjoy kind of a morning of quiet. And, and this is where God has promised you and I to experience him. The presence of the Lord is what gives us courage. The presence of the Lord is what reminds us that whatever we're suffering through, it's temporary, especially in light of eternity. The presence of the Lord is what gives us joy and peace in the midst of difficult seasons. So we're told, as was David, that we're to pursue God We're to steadfastly seek him in the tabernacle, in the temple. David said he attended worship with others and saw the beauty of the Lord. We read scripture, we pray, all so we can know the serene presence of God. See, while walking with him, our affections are set on him. And things above become more important to us than things below. And we begin to see life's difficulties for what they are. And this is what James is saying to us today. Your suffering, your struggle, your pain, it is a temporary season of trial that will most certainly be followed by an eternity of joy. So let's pray that we would see that today, okay? Father, today we are all experiencing challenges of one sort or another. They could be relational. They could be marital, Father, I... Every week, talk to a friend who's really battling. Father, it just could be work. Our work circumstances have been difficult and challenging. Some of us are physically suffering. We're emotionally suffering, the end of a relationship or the death of a loved one. Father, your word has told us that we can endure suffering as long as we know it's not going to last forever. And we would need your help to see the eternal perspective you're calling us to. We also need you to arrest our attention to the importance of experiencing you daily through the disciplines of reading your word, seeking you, not as a means of trying to get you to like us more, but a means, as a means of tapping into the source of the water of life that is the only thing that will give us peace amongst these problems. So I pray that you'd give us a grace, Lord, to want to seek you. And that you would, Father, bless us at the end of that pursuit that would just want us create within us a desire for more. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.